guilty soul and glory turn to Calvary. There your mercy and your grace was free. There your pardon multiplied to me. There my burden so found liberty at Calvary. everything now I gladly know him as my king now my righteous soul can only sing of Calvary there your mercy and your grace was free there your pardon multiplied to me there my birth so found liberty at Calvary. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God despaired at Calvary. Your grace was free. There your pardon multiplied to me. There my birth so found liberty at Calvary. There your mercy and your grace was free. There your pardon multiplied to me.
Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. When through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees. When I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook My soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. And when I think that God Sparing, sent him to die. I scarce can take him in. And on the cross, I bear it badly bearing. He bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art! How great thou art! How great thou art, how great thou art. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, My soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. And let us pray. And I hope I hope that you'll bless these tithes and offerings. I pray that we I pray that we'll have a good day. I pray that everyone feels good. And in Jesus' name, amen.
invite the children to come up here and have a seat with me. Well, good morning, boys and girls. How's everybody doing today? I got, I got this little fella in the mail last week, or a couple of weeks ago, actually, and uh, I, I thought about him this morning because he looked like a raindrop, and that's what reminds me of Sunday mornings lately, are raindrops, because we have a lot of those. Uh, does anybody know what this is? An M&M, An M&M no. It's, it's not quite that exciting. Huh? It's not an egg. A squishy. What's a squishy for? Does anybody know what you use a squishy for? It's a stress ball, okay? And so somebody sent this to me in the mail. I, I could only figure out that they thought that that meant I was stressed uh, if they send me a stress ball. Uh, so, so if anybody's looking to send me something, you don't have to send me a stress ball. Uh, so so I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not too stressed. You may know what stress is. You may know what, what's stress. That's sometimes, uh, that, that could be. Uh, stress is when you, when you worry about things, right? Has anybody ever worried about things? Anybody ever worried about something? Yeah, sometimes we worry. You worry? I worry about what you're about to say with that hand raised right there, right? Uh, so, so we worry about things from time to time. But then I thought about, well, why would a pastor have anything to worry about, right? Because as a pastor, I would think that, that I, would, I would trust the Lord, right? In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 says, Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And so, so I would think that it would be pretty easy to not be stressed if all I have to do to not be stressed is just trust in the Lord. It's not always that easy, though. In Jeremiah chapter 7, God was sort of angry at his people because they were trusting in the wrong thing. They were trusting in their own understanding. They were trusting in, in, in their worship. They were trusting in everything instead of God, and that didn't make God very happy. And I think that was a, that's good wisdom for us as well, that, that when we worry about things, and, and trust me, if you guys don't worry about stuff yet, it's coming, Okay. It's coming soon that you're going to be worrying about things. You're going to be worrying about grades, and, and believe it or not, you're going to be worrying about girls, right? <laughs> you're going to be worried about stuff like that. And your daddies, if you are a young lady, your daddy's going to be worried about boys, right? So, so there's coming a time that you're going to worry about things. But the good news is, is that you don't have to worry if you trust the Lord. Just believe that God's going to do what God says he's going to do and trust in the Lord. And, uh, and, and you don't even need a squishy. You don't even need a stress ball to help deal with some of those worries because you can trust that the Lord's going to take care of things, okay? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for loving us and caring for us. Thank you that, that, that we can trust you and depend on you, Lord, that, that sometimes we worry about things in this life and, and we, we stress over things that we can't control, Lord. But the good news is, is we have a God who, who controls all things, who, is, uh, who we can depend on completely. And so, Lord, even though these, these guys may not have a lot to worry about right now as children, Lord, we know that as they get older, those things will come. But, Lord, I pray that they will trust the Lord with all their heart and not on their own understanding. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys.
guys be seated. You know, we worry today about, uh, about what they call that lost generation, that, that group of 18 to 30-year-olds that, um, for, for whatever reason, and there's a lot of different opinions about why it is as it is, that they, they, sort, of fall off the, they sort of fall off the spiritual track uh, along the way. And I, I love to hear the positive testimonies of young men and young women who um, go to church as uh, young folks, they get saved, and, uh, and when they get to college, they don't blow their testimony or blow their faith. Uh, it's really exciting to me when I hear about uh, young men and young women who not only go to college and maintain their testimony, but the Lord actually takes their experience in college and their time that they have there and, and actually calls them into ministry and into missions. That was sort of my experience when I was in college, and, and, uh, and so I, I, I truly love to hear those stories. I want to ask Taylor Smith to come up here. Taylor, you may know Taylor if you've been around for a long time. Taylor was in our youth group a while ago, got saved here, uh, went off to Georgia Southern, and the good news is that Taylor is, uh, is back today. And I want her to share a little bit about what God's done in her life and, and, uh, and, and what she's looking forward to in the next couple of, couple of months. So, Taylor? My name is Taylor. Um, I uh, started coming to Northside either in middle school or high school. Um, I became a Christian right before my sophomore year of high school. Um, I came into this church uh, proclaiming I was a Christian, but really everything about that was just be a good person, come to church on Sunday, follow the rules, and it was pretty exhausting. Um, to be honest, and I came into this church, and um, through hearing the gospel, through good friends in my life who are sharing the gospel with me, um, I learned very quickly that uh, to be a Christian has nothing to do with what you do, has everything to do with Jesus has with what Jesus has done for you. And so, my in between my freshman and sophomore year of high school, I realized that Jesus loved me, and He wanted to make me into a new creation, and then He wanted to use me in the world, and. Uh, so the Lord gripped my heart, and there's really no returning from that. And um, all through high school, I was able to grow and walk with the God, walk with God. And uh, I went to college at Georgia Southern. I didn't know many people when I went down there. Um, so I just knew I wanted to get involved with the college ministry because I wanted to walk with the Lord. But I didn't really know what that was going to look like. And uh, praise be to God, my first week on the college campus, I was asked to play uh, flag football uh, intramural at Georgia Southern. Um, I was like, oh no. Uh, and my roommate talked me into it. Uh, so the two of us, she was not a Christian, um, and I was obviously, we started playing flag football. And it was through that team that I met some older girls um, who were living in my dorm who knew Jesus. Um, and it was one of the first times I actually um, saw people who were older than me but still younger, so in college, who were passionate about Jesus. Uh, these women were building relationships with me, um, some of them just one year older than me, some of them several years and were working on staff with the ministry, who were building relationships with me, um, and I could tell there was something different about them. I mean, I knew, I was like, I'm pretty sure these girls are Christians, and sat down with a girl one day. She shared the gospel with me over lunch, and I was like, yes, I believe that, and she's like, okay, what are you going to do with that? And I was like, oh, good question. <laughs> I was like, I want to do, I mean, I want to walk with God, so what else is there? And I'd gone on mission trips with the church here. Um, I went to Jamaica twice, and that was where God planted a seed in my heart for missions in the world, but it kind of never went past 
you go overseas to share the gospel. I didn't really, I mean, I knew that you should share it with those around you, but didn't really sink in a whole lot until I watched these girls do that with me and do it with the girls around them. They were living out their faith and loving the Lord, and they brought me along with them, and they were like, all right, let's learn to study our Bible. So through that ministry, I learned to study my Bible and go deep and learn to apply God's truth to my life and learn to run from sin that I had been harboring and and holding on to and learn that God is uh, gracious and good and wants to use us and and then I also learned all right Taylor this isn't just about you so uh, Matthew 9 36 through 38 um, Jesus uh, is with his disciples and it says when he saw the crowds he had compassion on them for they were harassed oh no (laughs) they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd Um, and he turns to them and he says Uh, The harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Uh, Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. And so it was at the beginning of my college time that God started planting these seeds. Taylor, the harvest is plentiful. There are so many people who need to hear the gospel. And there are so many people who are not sharing the gospel. And that isn't just overseas, even though it is there as well. It starts right here. It's your college roommate. It's the girls in your classes with you. It's those that you meet in, um, meet in the dining hall. They need to hear the gospel. And so I started to see missions is not just an overseas thing. It is a right here and now thing. And so started to learn to share my faith and started to learn to give my life away to college women. And I saw one girl become a Christian my sophomore year of college and her life radically go from she did not want anything to do with God to turning and following him. She's now in the church, married with children and giving her life away in the church. And I was hooked. I was like, all right, Lord, please use me. Like, what is this going to look like? And, um, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission. Um, Jesus returns from the dead, crazy as it is, and comes back to his disciples. And he says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all I have commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so Jesus sends us out as believers, to know him and make him known wherever that is. And I found so much joy, not just keeping my walk with God to myself, but being able to walk with women, whether they came into college, knew him like me, but didn't really know how to give their life away, or women who were running from God and wanted nothing to do with him, but being able to walk them through the Bible and show them how good Jesus is and how great he is and how he wants to have a relationship with them. And so... Um, Yeah, God just gripped my heart for missions in college, where I was at, what I was doing. And I think that was just a sweet thing for me because what God did is grow my heart for something that I didn't even know was coming. Um, He planted seed after seed after seed of how great participating in the Great Commission is until I came on staff with this college ministry. It's called Campus Outreach, and we are are on the college campus because we believe that the college campus is just one of those times, like Pastor Brian said, that, um, yeah, you are for the first time away from your family and having to decide what am I going to do about this thing that maybe I've grown up in. And um, we want to see college students not walk away from the Lord, but walk deeply with the Lord and then learn to give their lives away wherever they're going after they graduate, whether they're teachers or doctors or lawyers or stay-at-home moms and their families. Um, we want to see people give their lives away. So I came on staff with this college ministry and have 
been on staff with them for four years, um, being a missionary on college campuses here in the States, um, teaching young women how to walk with the Lord. Um, and now God has opened up a door for me to uh, move to Manila, Philippines, um, which if you don't know where that is, which I didn't um, until a couple of years ago when I knew some people who went right off the coast of China, underneath Japan, right above uh, Indonesia, so Malaysia, Singapore, all right there, so Southeast Asia. Um, so I'm going there to be on the college campus um, doing the exact same thing we're doing here. So building relationships with college men and women um, helping them learn that Jesus is for them, um, that Jesus wants a relationship with them, that they are sinners in need of a Savior, and then learn to help them grow and walk with the Lord. Um, and what's really cool about the Philippines is they are going places. Um, their greatest export is their people. Um, and so, like corn or cotton or whatever might be anyone else's export, their people are leaving the country. Um, and not just leaving because they don't like the Philippines. They're leaving to make... Um, to to work and to bring back money to their families. And so our prayer is, is that as we reach the Philippines with the gospel, and as we reach these college students, that the gospel would spread throughout all of South, Southeast Asia to places I couldn't be a missionary in, to places that I might not even be able to step foot just because of um, I'm an American or a white girl, that these Filipino students would take the gospel and spread it throughout Southeast Asia, the Middle East, and that we would see the world reached with the gospel. And so. Um, one thing I wanted to end with is just a reminder and what God has gripped my heart with is that missions is not about me and it's not about you. Missions is about God. Um, missions exist because worship doesn't. Um, the end goal of missions is that God would be worshipped in hearts where he isn't worshipped and in places where he isn't worshipped. And so Revelation 7, 9 gives us a picture of what the throne room of heaven is going to look like. It says, after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. And so my, what I'm so thankful for is that God gripped my heart with the gospel as a freshman in high school and now just begging the Lord that he would use me as an instrument that people would be worshipped all throughout the world um, for his name's sake, not for my glory or anyone else's, but for his. So, yeah, <laughs> thank you. I uh, absolutely love to hear stories of um, of young people who uh, keep it together uh, by God's grace. Keep it together, and so if you are if you're a high school student, just know that you don't have to go the direction that the prevailing winds are blowing. Uh, you can go a different direction, and Taylor's a great example of that. I remember the day that Taylor got saved. It was at youth camp. And I'll never forget the day they gave an invitation, and she was the first person to stand, and she practically ran down the aisle and uh, ran back a different woman. Uh, and I remember being on a mission field with her in Jamaica, and she got wrangled into a dental mission team. And uh, she, she, she does great tooth extraction, so if you're feeling a little sore today, uh, she, can, uh, she can help you out with basic, uh, basic household tools. 
So, uh, so she would be glad to, glad to help with that if you have any dental needs today. Um, and we were able, as a church finance team, we found some, some funds to help her with some of her one-time fees, uh, one-time cost. If you are interested in what she's doing in the Philippines, I'm sure she'd love to speak with you uh, today or, or give you her contact information so you can follow up with her. You know, one of the challenges that we face as modern Christians is understanding how our Old Testament predecessors worshipped. I don't know if, if you're like me, when I read through the, the worship in the Old Testament, the temple and the tabernacle and the sacrifices and, and everything, I can read the words, but I still have a difficult time comprehending what that must have been like for those folks to go into the tabernacle or go into the temple to, to worship. I, I read the Psalms, and you, you, you may read the Psalms of Ascent is a common phrase that you'll see, and it's, a, it's psalms that are sung by worshipers as they kind of climb the temple mount. And, and again, I can read it, and I know what it says, but I just have a hard time imagining what that must have been like for those Israelites as they, as they ascended Mount Zion to go worship the Lord. And again, I've read the text, I've read the commentaries, I've sat through college and seminary Bible classes, and I still don't have a good grasp on the experience of what Yahweh worship must have been like in the Old Testament. But, but even in Jesus' day, the nature of worship wasn't settled. If you remember the interaction Jesus had with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, uh, Jesus told her, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And so there, we, we know that even in Jesus' day, things were still a little unsettled. For crying out loud, we can't even settle worship today uh, in many churches. For New Covenant believers, however, we recognize that our worship is no longer restrained by geography. There is no temple or tabernacle that restricts our worship. We don't have to, to make a pilgrimage to, to Mecca to express our worship to our God. We don't have to go to Jerusalem to, to worship. Though there's no prohibitions against making trips, uh, pilgrimages if you want to use that word, no, no prohibitions about going to those significant historical destinations. I would love to spend Easter Sunday at the Garden Tomb in Israel. I can't imagine what that would be like to be in that place on Easter Sunday morning to, to, to have a worship service. That, that would be ph phenomenal for me, but there's no requirement. I don't have to do that in order to be a good Christian. I don't have to make a pilgrimage to do that. For New Covenant believers, the location of worship matters far less than the object of our worship. And so we come together in this place that we identify as Northside Baptist Church, although the building is not Northside Baptist Church, you are Northside Baptist Church. And so wherever this group of people were to go, whether it's at 3070 Highway 29 North, or if we decided one day at the, to go to the YMCA and have a worship service, that's a good idea. Uh, we would be Northside Baptist Church in that location where, that, where the people of God are, are gathered. However, just because we don't connect with the worship of our Old Testament ancestors doesn't mean that those texts speak any less to us today. And even though there may be some differences, um, they, that doesn't mean that they're not worth our consideration. If you've got your Bible today, open with me to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7 you'd stand with me as we share God's word together from Jeremiah chapter 7. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1. This is Jeremiah's, what's known as his temple sermon. It's a 
a fairly well-known one of his sermons. It says in chapter 7, verse 1, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, <clears throat> only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Father, thank you for Jeremiah's temple sermon. And though we have time for just a brief section of it today, Lord, I pray that we might grasp and comprehend uh, what it is for us here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I recognize that I did skip some chapters from last week. Remember, Jeremiah is not necessarily put together chronologically, and we also recognize that there's a lot of repetitive sections as well, and so you'd probably get tired of hearing the same sermon back to back. However, chapters 4 through 6 are a continuation of some of the themes that we've explored in the previous chapters, repentance and God's judgment. As we pick up in chapter 7, we join with a, a little bit of a different approach as the Lord is, is now giving Jeremiah a, a, a destination for his preaching. You're to take your message to the gates of the temple. The gates of the temple. Now, understand this. Jeremiah is not the most welcome voice in the nation of Israel. His voice is not one that people are eager to hear because if you've read through the book of Jeremiah, you know that, that there's a lot of... There's a lot of negativity in what Jeremiah has to say. And can we just be honest? When a culture is as depraved as there was, theirs was at the time, there was a lot of negativity to be said. As a culture descends further and further into the pit, there's not a lot of good news to tell the folks in, in this day. Our culture is descending more and more into the pit. And, and while we certainly have hope in Jesus, there's a lot of bad news to be shared today. There's a lot of things that need to be corrected today. And so some, sometimes we're criticized and critiqued because we're negative all the time. And, and you have to kind of look at the world and say, duh, right? That's a spiritual theological term, right? Duh. Uh, I think if it were in the Bible, we would understand it though. We, you know, Jeremiah could stand up at the temple and say, duh, and everyone would understand what he was saying. God tells him to go to this prominent location in the gate of Solomon's temple. And as you know, Solomon's temple was the centerpiece of Jewish worship. If you wanted to worship Yahweh and bring your sacrifices and your offerings, you had to come to Solomon's temple. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was housed. 
This was the officially sanctioned location. When, when God had the tabernacle in the wilderness, he said, there is coming a place, I will pick a place for my name where I will dwell, and that is Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. In Christianity, we don't have anything that even comes close, geographically speaking. I suppose you might say St. Peter's Square if you're a Roman Catholic. That's sort of the, the centerpiece, the, the place of, of central worship for Roman Catholics. If you want to see a crowd, look there on Easter, and you'll see a, see a crowd there as people gather by the hundreds of thousands for, for Mass at St. Peter's Square, right outside St. Peter's Basilica. So, so imagine this is Jeremiah's call to stand in the gates of, of the temple in Jerusalem. Imagine that you were called to go stand right there around that spire in the middle of St. Peter's Square with a loudspeaker say. Roman Catholicism is bankrupt on Easter Sunday morning. By the way, it is. That's true. It's a bankrupt theological position. But if you were standing in the midst of a few hundred thousand pilgrims de declaring the bankruptcy of Roman Catholicism, you would probably not be the most popular person in the Vatican on that particular day. And I suspect there'd probably be some... Um, some guards who would come and remove you from that position inside the square there at St. Peter's. This is what Jeremiah has been called to do. He's been called to stand in the midst of the temple gate where all of Judah was coming to, to bring their offerings and their worship and, and their sacrifices. And Jeremiah was called to bring a sermon to them that wasn't, you guys are great. You're doing awesome. Right? That wasn't, he, he didn't hold his Bible up like some of our smiley TV preachers and, and say, you're all fantastic and wonderful. Instead, he was called to bring a message of, of judgment to the people. And he tells them, he says, do not trust in these deceptive words. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. You say, why is it so re repetitive like that? You see, one of the indictments that the Lord has against Israel is that they had turned this place of worship into a kind of a good luck charm. Uh, I was going to, when I was thinking of the kids' sermon this morning, I was actually going to go to the store and buy a box of Lucky Charms to kind of talk to them about, about that, but then it was a monsoon and I didn't want to get out and go get Lucky Charms and we don't have any in our house. Uh, but they had sort of turned their, their temple into a good luck charm, and, and they approached it like this. We've got this amazing temple. We've got Yahweh behind the curtain. We're in good shape. As long as we've got this going for us, we are in fantastic shape. They had their ritual. They had their religion. They had their God behind the curtain. Nothing else really mattered. They had the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You see, there was a sense that the northern kingdom of Israel had, had really dropped the ball. They had fallen. And that the southern kingdom of Judah was spared because they had the temple. And Jeremiah was called to remind them that they weren't guaranteed anything. The temple for them became this kind of good luck charm. Ignore the man behind the curtain type thing. You've got your, you've got your, your good luck charm. You've got the temple. And then Jeremiah tells us so that God was having nothing to do with it because his indictment of them is, is if you keep the ritual but you don't keep the law, you're not earning any points with the Lord. If you keep the ritual but ignore the law, what good's the ritual? If you keep the, the trappings of this, of this religion but you don't honor the ethics of this religion, then what good 
is this religion. You see, God was far more concerned about the hearts of his people than he was concerned about their ability to follow the liturgy of the religion. When you steal, when you murder, when you commit adultery, when you swear falsely, when you make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known, and then you come and stand before me in this house, says the Lord, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered? You see, Jeremiah's sermon is very condemning. In those verses there in in chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, Jeremiah condemns him for breaking at least five of the Ten Commandments. That's That's a pretty... A blistering sermon, if you ask me. If he's got a group of people that are that are half broken at least five, and really it just depends on how you count bell worship and that sort of thing. We could probably get into six if we really wanted to. So he is condemning them for breaking at least half of the Ten Commandments, again, possibly more. The Israelites were running roughshod over the covenant that God had made with the people at Sinai, but man, they had the temple routine down to a T. They were stomping on the tablets of the Ten Commandments, but they had the temple routine figured out. And God is far more concerned about the ethics of the law than the ritual of the law. God's warning to the people is very clear. I love the language. Amend your ways. Amend your ways. Or what? Or your good luck charm will vanish. Verse 20. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. I find this absolutely fascinating. God gave meticulous instructions for building the temple. If you've read through, as, as, you, as you should have, you should be in Deuteronomy now, if you're reading through the Bible with us as a church, you should be through Deuteronomy and you know the meticulous nature with which God gave instructions for building the tabernacle. Down to the, the, the width and height and weight and, and everything was spelled out. Well, he does the same thing with the temple. When it comes to Solomon's temple, he gave, he gave David, gave Solomon everything that was needed in, in terms of dimensions, in terms of, of, of materials to be used. He was meticulous for giving instructions and building that temple. Have you ever done something like that where you have, you've invested something that was painstaking and meticulous? Uh, last Sunday was the Iwana Grand Prix, and, and we, we sort of dropped the ball on getting the car put together. And uh, about 1 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, Matthew's car was still in a bag in its wooden form. Uh, it, it, had not, it had not taken on car shape yet. And so the clock said we had about three hours to make this happen. And so we're working and painting and sanding and, and trying to get this thing put together. And we're gluing and stuff's falling off as we're gluing it. And we're trying to get it all glued back together. And, and there wasn't a lot of time that was invested in that. And so it didn't hurt quite as bad when something didn't stick like it needed to. But in other times, we've spent a long time getting those axles polished just right getting those wheels done exactly like they're supposed to be done. And and a lot of time and painstaking effort was invested in the sanding and the painting. And Gabe will tell you, because it was some of his cars, do not drop it. And and you hear daddy saying this at that event. 
Do not drop the car and you're looking at kids running it on the... Stop! And you know the painstaking effort that went into putting that thing together. Well, the Lord gives painstaking instructions in building this temple. Painstaking instructions. And then if you begin to think about the material value of the temple... This, is, this was shocking. I, I just wanted to kind of find out how much it would cost to build the temple in today's terms. Listen to this. Based on the numbers given to us in Kings and Chronicles, the value of the gold alone in the temple would be worth hundreds of billions of dollars in today's economy. Hundreds of billions of of dollars. That's just the gold. It doesn't count the silver and the bronze and the precious jewels and the, the, the labor that went into constructing it. Think about this, this structure. It, it, it would qualify as the most expensive building in existence today, if it were around today, just in the sheer amount of, of materials that it contained. Yet the Lord warns, warns the people, change your ways, or I will bring my wrath against this place. You see, God isn't afraid to get to the heart of our, our idolatry, even when our idolatry disguises itself as something that's close to the heart of God. God's not afraid to get to the heart of our idolatry, even when our idolatry disguises itself as something that is close to the heart of God. I don't know about you, but when I, when, I, when I hear that number, I find myself saying, Lord, isn't it a little extreme to destroy something that can only be described as priceless? Uh, do we have to destroy this temple? Can't we just shut it down for a little while and you know, get some Clorox wipes out and clean this thing up a little bit? Do we have to burn it down? It literally is worth hundreds of billions of dollars. Isn't it interesting, though, that's where we miss the point? Because our economics are completely out of whack. You think about it. What did God say to Samuel when it came time to choose King David? Remember? The Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance, on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When God considers the man, he's not concerned about the outward experience or the outward appearance. He's concerned about the heart of the man. Remember in Luke 21 when Jesus was comparing gifts, the wealthy people all came by and dropped their tithes, their offerings in the, in the, in the, the, the treasury. And everyone was, oh, look how wealthy they are. Look how much they can give. Look how generous they are. And we certainly appreciate gener generous givers, right? Uh, I appreciate their ushers putting the A-team ushers back out here again because uh, we know that the better looking the ushers, the more the offering that's collected. We know that. It proved last week. Um, so so we, we know that, that the kingdom runs on generous givers, right? Uh, just from an economic standpoint. But then Jesus looks at this widow who didn't have much. She had, she had two mites, two pennies, if you will. It was all that she had. And she put those two pennies. It didn't it wouldn't touch the, the power bill. It wouldn't buy a sacrifice for the altar. It wouldn't pay a priest anything. But she gave all she had. And Jesus looked at those gifts and he said, which one had the most value? 
it wasn't the ones that had the most monetary wealth attached to it. The one that had the most value was the one that was given out of the woman's poverty because she gave everything that she had. And so we automatically know that, that our economics and God's economics are a little bit different. We, we see things differently. And so I look at a temple with, with hundreds of billions of dollars worth of gold in it and I say, uh, let's preserve that. And the Lord says, that's just asphalt. <laughs> that's just asphalt. And if it's a source of idolatry, I'll remove it. So yes, if your trillion dollar temple to Yahweh is an object of worship and not something that points your affections back to him, he will certainly remove it from the equation. And I look, if you've been to Europe, I've never been to Europe, but I, I, I see pictures and things of Europe, and you, you look at all these old cathedrals, and they would spend hundreds and hundreds of years and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in today's terms building these massive cathedrals. And, and the cathedrals, again, became the object of worship instead of the means by which people worshiped. What are those cathedrals doing today? Sitting empty. They're sitting empty. They've been turned into museums and pubs and hotels today. You see, God's not afraid to get to the heart of our idolatry, even if it masks itself as something that's close to his heart. And don't forget, Jesus wasn't afraid to make a ruckus in this temple. When people turned the place of worship into a place of commerce, he went in and turned the tables over, and what did he quote? Jeremiah's temple sermon, you've turned my house into a den of robbers. So the question for us today, although our experience is radically different than it was for the people of God in Jeremiah's time, I think the question is still applicable. Do we allow our rituals to mask the emptiness of our relationship? There's nothing wrong with ritual. I don't have a problem with ritual as long as that ritual is a means to an end and not an end in and of itself. For instance, many churches pray the Lord's Prayer at every service. Many churches have communion every time they gather. I got no problem with that. If a church wants to do that, if that's something that's important to the church, to do that on a regular, every week basis, that's fine. There's no prohibition against it. There's nothing wrong with doing those practices as long as those practices are kept in the right frame of mind and they aren't ends into themselves. And they certainly aren't sacramental substitutions for a real and vibrant relationship with Jesus. When we speak of sacraments, we're talking about works that impart some sort of grace or some means of salvation. And there are plenty of folks in the world today who look at, who look at ritual as if, as if it's somehow sacramental, that it somehow or another imparts salvation to us, and that is not true. We don't receive grace by our actions, we receive grace by God's goodness. Uh, how many of y'all remember these things? These old offering envelopes. Remember the old offering envelopes? This one, uh, this one's got your name and everything. And then I love how this one's laid out. You get 20% for showing up. You get to 10% bonus if you're on time. Some of y'all would already have a 90. You get 10% if you bring a Bible. I don't know if you get bonus points for bringing a King James. You get 10% if you put something in the offering plate. If you studied your lesson, you get a whopping 30%. So you're in, a, you're in C territory, folks, if you do everything and don't study your Sunday school lesson. 
If you came to preaching service, you only get 20%. I was offended. For a total of 100%. And I know that back in the day, there were folks who were religiously keeping track of their offering envelopes. And then how many visits did you make? How many phone calls did you make? How many calls and letters or letters and cards did you make? And how many total contacts did you get during the week? I wonder what that looked like for us today. The danger here, listen to me, is that you literally could check all the boxes. You literally could check all the boxes. You literally could check all the boxes each and every week. You could get a hundred score every time you come to church and still not be where God wants you to be. All these things of our faith are not a substitute for real faith in Jesus. All these things of our faith are good. I, I Don't ever hear me say there's something wrong with giving or something wrong with praying or something wrong with bringing your Bible to church. You'll never hear me say there's something wrong with showing up on time. But all of these things that we do as, 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 as part of our faith, they are not a substitute for real faith in Jesus. It is good to give and it is good to study the Bible together. It is good to do these things. It is good to invite folks to church. But that stuff is not the substance of our faith. And it absolutely does not save us. I don't care if you've got a lifetime of filled out offering envelopes. And that over the course of your life, you've put a million dollars in the offering plate. That if you don't have faith in Jesus, there's no stack of offering envelopes so thick that'll pad your way into the gates of heaven. If you're listening to me this morning, and that's you, well, guess what your confidence is in? It's in the temple. Your confidence is in the temple. Your faith is in the temple to save you, and it, it, it won't. It can't. This really boils down to a simple inversion. Either your confidence is in the blood, or your confidence is in the ritual. Very simple. Either your confidence, your assurance is in the blood, or your assurance is in the ritual. You see, if your confidence is in the blood, then your motivation for your life is characterized by obedience both inside and outside the walls of this building. If your confidence is in the blood, guess what? That confidence carries with you into Monday morning and Tuesday morning and, and, and Thursday night. It carries with you to Friday night when the, when the invitations to do whatever come about. It carries with you throughout the week because your confidence is not in yourself or your works or your goodness or the things that you can do. Your confidence is in the shed blood of Jesus and that is transformative. Anyone who's in Christ is a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. When your confidence is in the blood, you see that during the week. What was God saying to the Israelites through Jeremiah's preaching? They had the offerings, they had the sacrifices, they had all, everything right about the temple, but as soon as they left the temple, they were breaking the commandments. 
They were stealing and adulterizing and worshiping Baal when they weren't worshiping Yahweh. They were bearing false witness. I'm sure they were mean to their parents. He just didn't say it. They're doing all these things when they're not in Yahweh's temple. And the Lord says, I can see through this. When our confidence is in the ritual, then you probably find that you can sing the songs, bring your Bibles, and give your offering on most Sundays. But on Monday, you find that there's absolutely nothing Christian about you. You see, real faith in Jesus isn't contained by the walls of a sanctuary any more than Yahweh was contained inside the Holy of Holies. He showed up there and gave him a a show. Goodness gracious, he gave him a show. When Solomon prayed and dedicated the temple, Yahweh showed up. But he's not contained there. And if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your faith is not contained by the walls of the building in which you worship. Here's the thing. God sees through this. He sees through it now. And he'll see through it on the day of judgment as well. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is about as clear about this as any text in Scripture. Listen to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did, did we not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? We did all the stuff. We had all the ritual. We did everything that, that was on the envelope that we needed to check. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And take your offering envelopes with you. See, there are countless people who have the mechanics of the Christian faith, but they lack faith in the Master. They've got all the stuff. They can check all the boxes. They can do all the things. But when they really look deep inside, they find that they're missing the master. And all the stuff won't get you through the gates. You can't stand before the Lord one day and say, Lord, I came to church. Look at my giving record. Look at, look at the, the letters I wrote, the calls that I made. But whatever you do, don't look at my heart. Because you'll see that in my heart, I am as far away from you as I could be. Just bow your heads and close your eyes today. I would ask you to look right now. Pray that old psalm. Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. 
and see if there be any offensive way in me. You need to ask yourself. You got the ritual. Lord, I came to church on daylight savings time in the middle of a rainstorm. You got the the material of this religion figured out. You can check all the boxes. You need to ask yourself if your faith in Jesus or whatever it is that you have follows you beyond the walls of this building. Does it go with you into your workplace on Monday? Does it go with you onto the the ball field if you're a student? Does it go with you into the classroom or into the doctor's office? Does it follow you? Because if your faith is contained within a building, if your expression of your faith is limited to however many walls this place has got, your confidence and your declaration is I trust in the church building. I trust in the hymn book. I trust in, in the screens and the projectors and, and, and the Sunday school lesson. And I, I trust in those things. And God says, I want more than just the things. I want your heart. Where does your confidence lie today? God says, amend your ways. Amend your ways, and you can keep on living here and dwelling here and worshiping here. Just amend your ways. And for those of us today, there is a a permanent amendment that can be made in Jesus. It's not a a day-to-day thing. I'll I'll get it right today. I'll, I'll master it today. There's a transformation that is available through Jesus that's extended to all today. There's a new covenant that's been brought by his blood. And you can become a member of that new covenant today by putting your faith and trust not in things but in a person Not in a place, but in a Savior whose name is Jesus. In just a moment, I'm going to give you that opportunity to make that decision today, to put your faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation today. God, would you move in our hearts, God, for for those who are in Christ today who sometimes put too much emphasis on our ability to, to to keep those works, let us not forget where our object of confidence lies. It's not in a place, it's a person whose name is Jesus. God, for those in the room today who are not followers of yours, God, who, whose confidence is anything but the blood, God, would you allow that inversion to take place today, that they would stop putting their trust in things and in, and in self and in dedication to a certain set of rules but that, God, that their, their confidence and dedication would be in Christ, in Christ alone. 
God, would you give them the courage today to come down in just a moment and say, I'd like to give my life to Jesus today. What a great and glorious day to see somebody be saved. So God, move in our midst now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and have a time of invitation. If you're here, you're not a Christian, don't leave today without making that decision to put your faith in Jesus and not having confidence in things. We're going to stand together and sing and you respond as the Lord would lead you to. There is my love to hear, love to sing its worth. It sounds like music in my ear, sweetest name on earth. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. It King Jesus Day, amen? Uh, real quick, Tim Potter, tell us about uh, two weekends from now. And you can check a box on the envelope if you invite folks to come to the come to the place. So, uh, so, uh, so you can get check boxes. Uh, so, so we we're excited about that. It's going to be an exciting weekend, and uh, look forward to what our kids have been working on and, and putting together. They put in a ton of hours getting this thing ready. So, uh, so you guys don't want to miss that. It'd be a great thing to bring your friends to. Do read your bulletin, pay attention. We have a church conference coming up tonight. It's sort of important. You probably want to be here for it. Uh, so, uh, but that's going on tonight. And uh, and do pay attention to the other bulletin announcements that are contained therein as well. Is Philip? There he is. Philip, come on up. Dismiss us in prayer, bro. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for another day that we've gotten to worship you, Lord. Another day to, to live on this earth in your service. Uh, Father, I just pray that we would take today's message to heart, uh, put aside any idolatry that might exist in our lives, and, and focus squarely on you. Lord, be with us now as we leave from here. Uh, help us, help keep us safe in, 
and in your service until we're able to gather again. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.